Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infill recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark is joined by a panel of experts hosted in the offices of Priestman Goot. The panel includes Paul Priestman, Kirsty Diaz, David Constantine, and John Mathers, and explores how design is serving high-growth companies, mass and luxury transit, and inclusion through innovation, where design brings everyone along as we head into a better future. You're listening to Driven by Design, Design in the Boardroom, live podcast here at Priestman Good. I'm Mike Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Paul Priestman, the chairman of, of Priestman Good. Please give me a round of applause for Paul. Now, Paul is uh, both a multi-award multi winning um, uh, designer, but you recently picked up, uh, was it last year or the year before, you picked up one of the London Design Festival medals as well? Uh, yes, I did. I picked up a, a gong. Yes. Picked up a gong. Is that, <laughs> is that it? That's all we're going to get from you, Paul, is yep, that you yep, picked up a gong. Yep. All right. And uh, sitting next to Paul is David Considine, uh, co-founder of Motivation. Please, round of applause for Paul. Uh, for David. So, David, you, um, you're joining us with a very interesting perspective because you as an organisation both work on delivering design outcomes, but you also have to go report to your board on how these design initiatives work and how you're actually delivering value. Yeah. Yes, um, we, were, we were started from design school. Um, we have a design person on our board uh, who's an ex-tutor from the Royal College. Um, so design is right through the organisation, it's our roots and I think some years ago we probably forgot a little bit of that um, and we've recently had a new chief exec join us and she really recognises the benefit and our USP of being uh, a design focused non-profit organisation um, in a space where design doesn't really exist if you like uh, in the international development space so we're quite unique. Um, our problem is uh, funding the design work because we need to uh, get investment into that. And people who fund, typically fund our work want to see the work delivered in the field, but they don't necessarily want to or understand that they need to help uh, fund the development of the products that we and the services and the training that we put in the field to add social benefit in developing countries. And, and so what's very interesting there in, in the short presentation that you did there, we've already got lost without enough definition of what type of design because we use the word design about 10 times to mean nine different things. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that we're going to cover today is maybe there's actually a little bit more definition of what is different design or maybe it's actually a term which is needs needs to be rethought because everything seems to be designed and nothing's designed which causes us problems. Kirsty, over to you. Next is Kirsty Diaz. Now, Kirsty, you're. <laughs> Kirsty, I had to ask for a round of applause for the other <laughs> presenters, and you managed to go get one off your own bat. 
You've got a following. All by myself. All by yourself. Okay. Well, hopefully that's not going to be a theme song for us here. But um, uh, your role here at Preston Good, you, you've, and when I met you, it was to do with um, rail projects and a particular rail project that you've got here in your showroom, which is, help me with the name of it. Um, it's called Horizon, and it came out of a project called Tomorrow's Train Design Today, and it was the result of a competition that we won um, to look at uh, congestion on commuter trains. And so it puts six seats into the space of four, but it delivers a very different passenger experience to the one that um, most people currently experience today. So one of the pleasures of being here in the foyer of Prisman Good is that not only have we got the train experience there, but we've also got, we're sitting in a, in a mock-up fuselage and we also have other fuselages that show other implementations. Earlier when we were having a bit of a discussion, we were talking about what's the time frame for a project to go from being a concept project that you that you participated in a competition into into public use and what's the difference between that in rail and what's the difference if it's in the commercial airline industry and there's some very interesting temporal differences there that have to do with some market dynamics so we'll go into that with a little bit more detail there and John John are you going to get a round of applause from the crowd here John made it <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you know that you leave the Scotsman to, you know, because you, you come with your own brogue there and it, it's great to have you here. Now, for the listeners, uh, John wears a couple of hats here. One of them that we're going to be talking about is that he previously was the CEO of the uh, British Design Council and in that role there was involved with commissioning a range of reports that talked about what was the value of design in, in enterprises, what was the value of design to the community and really the helped economy. and the economy in general that's right and so that's helped as far as people being able to get some metrics and understanding but what we didn't get to in, in that great you know volley of work that you did was that we didn't get to the point that we actually were seeing a common language that came out which seems to be the next phase that we get to there's a lot of inefficiency as people are trying to talk about design in boardrooms because as they're talking about it they're often telling different stories all the time and if you're telling different stories people who come from legal backgrounds the people who come from um, uh, finance backgrounds are used to the same set of measures being the way that they interpret something because a term means something and therefore they understand the risk associated with it. So it's going to be very interesting to have a chat with you about where that next era is. But you've also got another hat on, which is that you're involved with the British Design Fund. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Well, the British Design Fund, uh, it sort of came out of the Design Council where we ran an incubator for very early stage product startups. And we found that um, when we came to the end of the 20-week program that they ran, uh, there was just no follow-on venture capital funding for physical product ideas. I mean, there are as many venture capital funds as you can shake a stick at that want to find the next new technology startup. Um, but, you know, good old physical things are just not getting the support that they need. And actually, um, there are huge opportunities still in the world for things that are 
actual things that make a difference. And so the fund is, we've been going for a year and a bit, um, raised a wadge of money and invested in five companies. The interesting thing is that it's often the, uh, and I suddenly realized I'm a startup too as well now, which is quite a weird thing to be doing. But uh, the, the interesting thing is it's not just the money, it's actually the mentoring and support that we have from a raft of um, uh, mentors that we brought on board who can actually help those organizations move to the next stage. And it's not that we're eschewing um, technology. I mean, often some of the products that we look at are technology enabled and that's fine. But first and foremost, they have to be a well-designed British product that is actually meeting a need. And I, I think that there's a great danger that we often see um, a lot of technology startups which come from the technology, not necessarily from the user need. Um, and there's a big difference there. And, and we know that uh, there was a, a lovely chapter in uh, February 2015 where you went and saw this flip from engineering-led or technology-led into human-need design-led in Silicon Valley. Facebook had just finished their acqui-hire of Hot Studio. You had Microsoft had a new CEO who announced that they'd actually be human-centered design-led. You had Salesforce announce their first design um, standards. Google I.O., which used to be an engineering conference, was announced to be a design conference that year, and it goes on and on. So something happened in 2014, around about September 2014, where boards began to say, just using technology is peaking out for us. We need to start to think about how do we meet the human needs of our clients because we're trying to go from an early adoption rise into, into a, a mature adoption with technology products there. So we've had John talking about this uh, products that need to come around that could have some funding and could have some innovation. But I'm going to throw over to Paul because I know that you're in heavily involved with a project, which is the Hyperloop Transport Technologies project. And what's interesting about that project is that they understand that they have to create a designed experience and an engineered experience that is actually going to give customer comfort, is going to give customer reliability, and it's going to be something where people are excited by the idea of being moved at a thousand kilometers hour down a windowless tube. So that's, that's a really interesting brief because they're not coming to you saying, can you convince us? They're actually saying, can you come and help us? So can you give us a bit of an idea of the difference of a client who's actually leaning in and saying, we want your help, rather than people that you have to go and convince? Yeah, I mean, um, Hyperloop Transportation Technologies is an interesting company. It's a startup. And... Um yeah, they have this uh, this dream of creating a new form of transport. I'm sure everyone understands the, roughly the principle, but it's a basically it it's allows a vehicle to travel at high speed, equivalent to an aircraft travelling at altitude. So it's within a, a semi vacuum in a tube, um, and that allows it to move more freely and and use less energy and less and has less friction. But one of the disadvantages of it is it's in it, you have no way of knowing where you are. So um, something that we, we've been doing for many years at Priest Magood is, is designing environments to make you feel secure. Um, being at high altitude in an aeroplane is, is, is not the most uh, sort of relaxing experience, however much you, you might be telling yourself and, and having a glass of wine or whatever. But um, so, so we have the same problems in, in, at ground level, but you're traveling at high speed. And um, there are lots of things to challenge on that. Um, and we, we've been designing the exterior, which is a lot to do with aerodynamics, because of course there is a little bit of air in the tube, um, but also how people get on and off, <clears throat> efficiency, 
how you can get potential volume and capacity. Um, High-speed trains that we're designing in, in China or uh, in North America, um, they, travel, uh, they travel at normal speed, but they, tra they, they carry an awful lot of people, thousands of people per journey. And if you think about the Shenkensen in, in Japan, they're, they're leaving every nine minutes with 1,000 people. And that, that's difficult to get that throughput in any other form of transport. But what we're trying to do is always do, it's to make that experience the most enjoyable, pleasurable, and efficient. Um, there are lots of interesting examples going on in, that we're trying to tackle in public transport, in metros. Uh, it's, it's a selfish moment because people are all looking at their mobile phones. Um, they're not communicating to each other. They're not moving as crowds. So you get people blocking the stairwells and doors as the door's shutting. They're jumping up and stopping watching their YouTube video and holding up the whole, the whole system, probably blaming the system for being late when they're actually causing the problem. Uh, so the, these technologies, we can we can tap into and it's a phase but we will become more and more efficient and and uh, those systems are are interesting the other very interesting about uh, hyperloop transportation technologies they have a view about the charging we've already talked about free transport and this is something they're freely talking about um, and the fact that transport really moving is is a byproduct of doing something else you normally do so you you know, in, in, in California now, um, people's work, daily work is, is treated from the moment they leave the house to the moment they get back, not just the time that they're at work. So what happens in that? So people are going to have to be able to work as they travel. And if you take that philosophy, then what's the rush? So why can't you take the slow road? Why can't you enjoy the moment? You know, why do people prefer to work in a cafe by themselves rather than sitting in their room at home? And I think transport has that so Paul, can capability. I ask, can I ask why we need HS2? <laughs> <laughs> so help us out. Capacity. For, for people who aren't familiar with the, with the new rail projects in the United Kingdom, help us out. What's a HS2? Oh, sorry, sorry. HS2 is the new um, high-speed link between... London, uh, Birmingham, and the North West. Yeah. Um, and there is a degree of controversy going on at the moment about whether it's actually needed or not. And it's it's quite a it's quite a pivotal moment because uh, in theory somebody could actually cancel it. Um, uh, although so much money has now been committed that it would be very, uh, I cannot believe it would actually. But happen. the United Kingdom, but but not but, known but, but 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 one of the um, the original propositions for why it should be built uh, was because it got you from A to B a bit quicker than it did uh, previously. Whereas actually, if you could actually improve the technology on board that allowed people to work more easily. Um, then um, maybe there could have but been... But I, th I think, I mean, railways have always been linear developments. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the development of London and you think of Metroland and, and the, the suburbs, they were, they were created by the metros, by trains. Yeah. And I think HS2 is, I mean, what's the alternative? Uh, you know, build a six-lane highway. I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, it, it is a linear development. I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's interesting how I'm not sure politicians necessarily are up to speed with the arguments and are actually using the arguments in the best possible way. And so this introduces to a, to an interesting area about design in the boardroom and thinking about it from a political spectrum. If you go to uh, Berlin, Berlin's uh, in the process of, I think they're nine years late now on delivering a new airport. 
the airport isn't where the engineers or the planners had said that it should be. It's actually in a curfew zone, so it can't operate 24-7. And a recent report said, let's stop turning this airport into an airport. Let's turn it into a shopping centre and put the airport where it should be so it has universal facilities for people. That's an example of where politicians had actually decided to do something that seemed politically expedient but not necessarily in the best interest of the country. I'm going to stay away from Brexit because there's too much to talk about that. But but that happens all the time that we see in country by country that political movements mean that there are some very strange decisions made. But that probably also means that we haven't communicated the underlying human need and the underlying human benefit that comes out from, from a project, which is which happens whether it's a private organisation, a government-funded organisation, a community group. If you can't actually get the vision and, the, and that leadership position right, then you're going to find that a project struggles. And the reason I asked Paul the question about, about the Hyperloop team is they've got a vision which is very clear and very singular and they've got a timetable that there's actually a competitor who's also trying to come out with a product. So what we've got is a race and the first company to go get the Hyperloop experience right is going to win a lot of economic advantage. That's a great circumstance for people saying we want to get this right and can we use design to go do that, which is totally different to the way that, say, rail projects work when it comes to the seating project that we're going to have a look at here because those projects there are generally driven by engineers. They're put through procurement departments. They're done in a very slow way because nobody's going to not take a, mon a, a monopoly train because the journey experience is not that fantastic or hasn't been improved. There might be some incremental change there, but it's been driven by factors which aren't about making a great customer experience, which is different to a commercial airliner. If you go think somebody like um, Emirates, Emirates need to make sure that they're winning first-class cabin fares ahead of their competitors. But if you've got a monopoly train route, they don't have the same drivers. So in this showroom that we've got here, we've got some projects from people who are trying to work out how to win a race. And we've got other people who are trying to just be a little bit less shit for their customers. I know, I'm Australian, I sometimes <laughs> say that sort of thing. And, and so that, that has a very big difference in the way that projects work. And so, David, I want to I go across to you and ask you a question about the projects that you're seeing that you're being asked to go work on as an organisation. What are the main drivers of people there? Because you're doing a lot of projects which are about having impact. Are people actually well balanced in the type of projects they're getting you to do or are they coming from something that is nice or something which is important? Um, we tended to self-generate our pro programs because we're quite unique in our space. There isn't really another organization that's using design, and by this I mean product and service design. Uh, we, we basically design low-cost wheelchairs in, for developing country situations, um, and the service and training that goes alongside that to, to seat and fit people. Um, so we're quite unique in that space. So we self-generate um, uh, ideas based on our experience and knowledge from overseas. So we're we're in the humanitarian space, if you like. Have you got to the to the phase where 
people are now seeking you out because of your reputation as saying, can you help us? And they've come up with funding and that they need to have your expertise to, to leverage that funding? Yeah, um, we have. Generally, for, well, for many years, uh, we would get people coming and asking us for our expertise but without any funding and saying, you know, and or we, for example, we got, uh, this is uh, mostly we'd get asked by, by local governments uh, overseas or uh, local partner NGOs overseas, um, sometimes international NGOs. But just recently, well, in the last decade, we've got asked by the International Paralympic Committee, for example, who recognised that they needed a low-cost entry-level grassroots sport development chair to get people into basketball, tennis, racing, the kind of things you'd see at the Paralympics, but are totally unaffordable if you're living in a developing country and you're lucky enough to just get a chair at all. And so they recognised that, you know, the Paralympics was never going to develop beyond, you know, the, the countries that have, uh, especially in wheeled mobility sports where you need equipment and that equipment makes the make or break as to whether you win or not or even go to the second round or even get into the competition. So they asked us with our design experience to do that and the first thing we turned around and said, well, great, yeah, we'll, we can do that for you. We don't know much about sport, but we'll, we'll find out. Uh, but we know about low-cost design. Um, have you got any money to do this? Because we don't have that kind of money just sitting around. Uh, no, we don't. So we actually thought it was an important project, so we went out and raised it ourselves. And now that create that the sales of those products, because we now sell them to people in the UK and Europe and the US through agents, as well as provide them to the International Red Cross and other humanitarian organizations to get grassroots sport going in another country. Um, that income is part of a social enterprise which we've now formed as part of the non-profit. So it's created an income stream for us, which takes the heat off our fundraising needs, which is great. And so, and then as another example, the, the British government for the first time ever last year, in the 28 years we've been running, recognized that actually design and products and services for those products were an important thing for them to the international um, the Department for International Development, which is Britain's sort of aid arm, if you like, of the British government. They 0.7 of GDP that we spend on humanitarian aid overseas comes through DFID, the Department for International Development. And that's the space we work in, and they were willing to fund our work to actually seat people in in chairs overseas and do livelihoods or, um, you know, part of poverty eradication kind of projects. And our focus would be on wheelchair users. They weren't ever willing to, as I said at the beginning, fund the design part of it. But now they've suddenly recognised they're never going to meet the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, in bringing everybody along with that process, whether you're female, whether you're a child, whether you're poor or have a disability, in this mantra, leave no one behind. They're never going to achieve that if they're going to leave uh, a certain range of disabled people behind. And so we've, for the first time ever, got some funding to design a new range of, of products, which we started ourselves, and now we've got some money to put towards that process. So and it's so, starting to happen. So that's a really interesting model of, if we go think of Hyperloop Transport Technologies, we're in a race, we, we're putting funds into this so that we win the race, we want to engage you. 
We've also, and we'll come back to talking about the rail projects, which are we just need to make this a little bit, a little bit fresher and a little bit newer. Hopefully it's more than that. But then we go into a community sector where there's actually the need is identified, the funds don't exist, and then there's a governance process to say, well, how do we get the funds for that? So, so th what's interesting there, though, is that there's a purpose behind it. And that purpose is able to go give people an understanding of this is important and we have to do it. So that brings me to the rail projects because the rail projects sound like the, the initiative of the design process was nice. It wasn't necessarily important to the KPIs that the organisation was primarily driving itself behind. Is that a fair assumption that it's in the nice category or do you think it's actually in the urgent, important category? Um, I think that obviously the, the competition came from the Railway Safeties and Standards Board. So it, I think it came from a kind of government recognition that it is a issue you know passengers need to get to work and preferably they'd like to have a seat um but i think that is their primary need you know if you look at all the research passengers who travel by train into big cities and i think this is globally recognized just want to get they want to get on the train so they they start from a very low level you know their expectation is is low um, and so our seat obviously allows more people to get on a train, which means more people might get to work on time. Um, but I think it's still, yeah, I think our experience is that it's still very challenging to offer something which is a different experience in rail, partly because it's highly certified. So obviously the industry, and I think this is um, perfectly justified, is quite risk averse because they want to deliver first and foremost safety. And that makes them very cautious as an industry. But I think the need to provide a different passenger experience is less because they are not driven by competition. You know, the alternative for people to get, for example, if we use London, the alternative for people to get into central London on a commuter train might be the car. Well, nobody drives into central London. So actually there is no choice and therefore there is no competition. And competition fundamentally drives innovation generally. And there's, there's also a gap there that there's nobody who's promised that this level of comfort will be delivered to the passengers. And so there's no expectation that's set. It's actually, it's an initiative which is it would be nice to have this rather than it's urgent and important to have this. And, and I know when, when I was running my design practice, we used to assess clients on a very simple principle was, was this urgent and important for them or was it nice? And whenever it was a nice project, we knew that it had a certain cadence. Didn't mean we didn't do it, but it had a, it had one cadence. And then we had projects like, the, say, the Hyperloop, where you knew it was urgent and important. And if it wasn't done, that they'd miss something that was was really important to them from a performance perspective. And those clients were always far more engaged in the process because it might have been their role as a CEO that that might have gone. It might have been that their financial bonus that they weren't going to receive was, uh, was at threat, but there was something that actually helped to push it along. 
And so when when we go look at projects that are in the in the awards, and particularly in the government awards, we see that they're often projects that have a much lower cadence because that urgency isn't there. Until you wind up with something that has to do with terrorism. And the moment that terrorism comes around, you find out that there's an urgency to go solve it. But unfortunately, the way that it generally gets solved isn't so much design as engineering. And then it takes a couple more iterations to come through on something that might be designed well. So it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting to say, I don't think it's a criticism of any particular client. It actually has to do with it just understanding the personality of the type of project they're involved in. I, I, might, just, I might just disagree on that slightly um, um, because I, I think, I think um, design has moved on and I think design is always about making something better. And it's not just about making something pretty, because I think the best the best companies understand that design is actually embedded in the culture of a company, a, 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 an organisation. And it's to in, in public transport, it's to do with okay, it might make it look slightly better, but it's to do with performance. It's about natural wayfinding. I mean, we're doing a, a project in in Hong Kong uh, with the metros, and they've been doing a really lovely study of of um, sculpture and, and art is normally just sort of slapped on walls. And they've done this study where actually art is wayfinding. So if you go down a corridor and there's some galloping horses as a fresco on the side, then people tend to walk in that direction. Uh, or there's a sculpture that you meet at rather than a big sign saying meeting point. And what it does, it, re it reduces the amount of super, you know, signage everywhere saying don't go here, do go there, um, into something which is a much more enjoyable pr uh, a transition process. But also, it makes it more efficient. So I, th I think design has moved on, but it takes a very sophisticated client to understand that. And I think the most successful companies fully understand that. It's the ones that are lagging behind, which you really don't get it yet. I think, I think the, my, my view is if that the consultants, the major consultants like McKinsey and KPMG and Accenture and everyone else are, are investing so heavily in design thinking organizations, design organizations, they recognize the value of uh, design. And I think, is it KPMG have just done a, and not KPMG, it's Accenture yeah. have just done a report. On, well, Accenture have got a report. On McKinsey have a report. McKinsey have got a report. Deloitte has yeah. a report. So uh, PwC has a report. And that's interesting that all of the big consultancy yeah. firms now are giving their best thinking and distributing it to show how ready they are to go help their clients. So, and, and they have design consultancies. I mean, Accenture yeah, that's right. has fueled. That's right. They, well, they all have they all have design co companies now. And I think they, they recognize that design needs to be on the agenda. Uh, in board in the in the boardroom, and that um, actually probably the design industry has not been as adept as it should have been in getting design into the boardroom, with obvious exception. I, I, I believe it's because I think. To, to sell design or to, to, to get design understood within the board, you, you have to have a very strong sense of, of a, a, an idea that everybody gets. And often on some of the biggest projects like Terminal 5 at Heathrow, where we're presenting ideas, you need an idea which, which people can get right at the top to people that don't even think about design. And, and, and it's how, it's how you, 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 can, you can come up with a solution that you can give to one person, they tell someone else and they tell someone else, 
but they still get the idea. Maybe. So it's that strong idea to, to allow that, that design to, to pull through. But I think the design community also needs to learn that they have to speak in the same language and as, the, as, as the design. And so I'll, I'll go back then to the Hong Kong MTR. We, we had the privilege of, in one of the other live pro, uh, podcasts, that Andrew Mead, the chief architect of the Hong Kong MTR, was, uh, was on our panel. Yeah. And uh, Andrew had shared with us that it wasn't from the get-go that the board understood his role as the chief architect to include everything from the passenger experience, the uniforms, the wayfinding that was in the stations. And he said that, you know, they now get where he adds value to, to this transport system. But it took him four or five years to get to that point that they really understood the value that he was after. And he had to learn how to broker their understanding of what design could do for the organisation, his language of how he would report that through. And I think it's, that, it's building that culture which is very important. And sometimes we, we expect that you can have somebody who's been used to being a, a technical craft-based designer can walk into a boardroom and impress them because something, it, it makes sense. Well, that doesn't happen with anything else. You can't get somebody, most actuaries can't speak to a board. There'll be some middle management that helps them to understand how do you take the actuarial model and explain it in something that is relevant to the board's needs. So I get reasonably frustrated when I see designers saying, I want a seat at the board um, because the reality is that design is in the boardroom, just you're not in the boardroom. And that's not a bad thing. It probably is that there's a bit of translation that takes place there. And Andrew was a very good example of doing that at Hong Kong MTR. The work that he's done, and yeah, there's a book that Hong Kong MTR have done that shows the before of the wayfinding and the after. And it does things such as it takes away from just all being green tiles and winds up putting contrast levels in there so that at a just out of the corner of your eye you can see where an exit is whereas when it was all green tiles you couldn't go do that and um, the example of the horses you know giving you an idea of the direction that you should move in all of these things speed people through a rail network but I don't think he sold it on design I think what he solved it on was we need to get more people through the network we need to stop blocking points and I'll go back and ask him, but I doubt that he actually used the word design. What he was doing was talking about design principles to solve the organisation's needs rather than saying, do you realise you're buying design? And and so that's a, that's a big thing there. And I, and I suppose, Kirsty, as far as the, the projects that you see, how often is it that somebody is after you to solve their primary need rather than them trying to buy design? Um, it depends on the project. Some projects we might have been employed by, you know, a train operating company where the chief executive is the first point of contact. So it's absolutely first, you know, forefront of that company's business and objective. And they understand that, yeah, they need to hire a designer and that's the most important thing that's going to make, deliver the best passenger experience they can. In other projects, they might be major projects, but we're being hired by, you know, the design team who are kind of further down the food chain. So I think it, it, it's cultural, it's to do with the different ways organisations operate. 
So I want to go through our panel here and ask who actually has an ER, as in they're a particular design ER. So Paul, your qualifications as a design ER, what did you study? Um, I studied ceramics at school. Um, I then went as foundation at Central St. Martins. I then went to, carried on at Central St. Martins, did product design. I then went straight to the Royal College of Art, where David was studying. And um, I then um, set up work out of my bedroom and um, started work from there. And, and so with that formal training that you had uh, in the craft of design, what have you had to supplement that with so that you're able to go speak about the economic concerns, the environmental, the planning concerns? So has that been through osmosis, through the research that you've done and the projects that you've been involved, or have you supplemented that with other forms of education to give you expertise there? Um, personally, I've, I've, um, I've always been interested in, in, in the bigger projects, uh, the more complex, bigger projects. I, I certainly didn't want to design yet another chair because um, we need lots of chairs in the world. Um, I was much more interested in some of the, the, the certainly the public transport, the infrastructure, um, making a difference to large amounts of people's lives. And some of the projects we do now, you know, you, you might board um, a train and, and um, not realise that every item has been designed and, and, and uh, thought about, but the experience is better than it would have been. Um, and I think that's the aim in public transport. And, you know, from, from uh, also from a personal point of view, and, and, and from Priest and Good's point of view, we're constantly thinking about the environment and the planet uh, and what can we do about that to, to make, to, to, to somehow um, make, make the world a better place um, and uh, persuading to people to get out of cars and, and to use public transport is, is one of our main themes. I suppose as you were trying to work out how to get onto those projects and to seem more relevant to the people who had the money, you had to learn their language and you had to actually become relevant to them. Yeah, I, mean, I think when you're working with some of the big, big projects, um, it's difficult when you're straight out of college um, that you do need some sort of gravitas and you need some... I mean, I've always looked a bit older than I actually am, um, which helped. I was always the one that was sent down the pub to get the beer at school when everyone's too young. But, um, <laughs> and um, I, th I think, you know, when you're meeting clients and, and talking about projects, they, they, they basically want a, a safe pair of hands. They want, they want to believe that you can do the project and, and, and you can deliver. And um, I think that's, that's the, one of the most important things is that trust. And um, I think also it's, it's probably more difficult to get into the arena we're in now than it, that it used to be. Um, some of the software programs are incredibly complex. Um, there's obviously lots more um, process and, and being able to deliver to certain contracts and specifications. So it is a very involved thing. And, and to be a, a larger company or one of the largest companies in this sector, it, it is an advantage now. So we know that you've had some time there at the Royal College, but you've also had some sins where you did some very rational economics and finance training as well. Is that right? Help us out with your with your path journey. Uh, wasn't allowed to do art at school. I was told I couldn't do a GCSE in art and graphics, uh, but I did do metalwork, which I loved, um, and. Uh, then I went to Agricultural College. Uh, life changed for me and I had an injury, so I ended up doing a computer and uh, finance and accounting degree, um, which led me to a, a large computer company, IBM. And it was in 
there that I discovered what design really was. I think I probably knew, but I actually never put the word to it. Uh, I had this sort of literally a, an epiphany one day when I was asked, I asked to do a month in, a, in the photography department because I thought it would get me out of programming. We were allowed as graduates to the company to go and discover other areas of the, of the business. And so we could spend a month three times in the first 18 months in any department we chose if the manager would take you on and the manager for the photography department said no so they stuck me in the design department and I was put on some graphics program uh, doing new typefaces and one day at lunch I asked these three guys who sat in the corner with big CAD machines what they did and they told me they were industrial designers and I said well what's that and uh, and they told me then they took me into the the blue foam prototyping room and it was then that I just realized that that's, was the space I needed to be in. I didn't know whether I'd be any good at it. And then unbelievably, I wrote, ended up at the Royal College. So I had no you know, central, no foundation sort of experience like Paul did at all. Uh, and it was the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me because it, it found, essentially founded what I do today. Um, and from a college project, um, and we started in my bedroom in London as well. Um, yeah. Um, so in that design journey and that design story, um, you know, and we did quite a, as someone once described it, as a, quite an unsexy thing of bringing design into a sector which it didn't really exist in before. Um, and we felt like a, a square peg in a round hole for many years. And just in the last four or five, we've, and particularly last year, we're starting to gain some traction and people are understanding that actually what we do is important and the real physical, practical stuff, as well as the service and the training, is really important. Um, and it's like, oh, thank God, you've realised. But, you know, trying to go into those meetings, it's a bit like trying to go into other people's board, trying to go into those meetings with funders, potential funders and other NGOs to try and persuade them that actually we weren't just airy-fairy, you know, putting a, putting a pretty wheelchair out there. This was a functional product which was going to improve someone's quality of life. And, yes, it looked better, but it was real and it worked and it, you know, and that's what we've built our reputation on. So that's a, that's a huge journey to go through from saying, well, I didn't understand until I had my epiphany moment at IBM and then following that up with doing additional training but then applying yourself to a very particular purpose which was I want to go see how design is able to go make the life for people that much better. And that's given you some guidance there, but also given you a very easy narrative to go to go follow because people can say, I know what this person is about, they're consistent. And something I see a lot of a lot of designers get caught in is that they keep switching and moving around and it's hard for people to understand what they want to go do. Kirsty. Tell uh, us about I'm, your design. I'm one of those people. <laughs> tell us about your so so where did you start on your design er journey? <laughs> I'm not a designer. Oh, somebody else is out on the panel. <laughs> I, I can't put the er at the end of my name either. So t tell us how come did you, how did you become this imposter that you are? So I have a French, <laughs> I'll make this quick. Um, I have a French degree, but when I was at university, I did lots of uh, theatre production. I produced uh, plays. And I, when I graduated, I worked in theatre 
And the thing about my career, which has been consistent, is that I have worked with creative people. And I actually think that my experience of theatre production is very similar to what I do now, because I kind of facilitate creative experiences. And I think, you know, that is the, the thing that I have... Uh, I've used, although I've actually worked in a number of different art forms. So I worked in theatre for some time, in the producing theatre, and then I went into the visual arts, into, I worked for the Barbican Art Gallery, and went from kind of organising exhibitions into kind of curatorial role. Um, I had some curatorial experience, which then um, I took it to the British Council, which is actually where I met Paul. And I also met David uh, because I was the project manager of an initiative called Millennium Products, um, which was also an initiative with the Design Council. And um, I toured that around the world and that basically brought together kind of my commercial and curatorial experience, which I have then brought into play in my role at Priestman and Good. And what's really interesting there with that story is that you've had an understanding of the role that design can play, but you didn't have to be a designer to start that journey, did you? You were able to go and actually say I can bring other life skills and understanding of how do you create a great audience experience, which is the theatre world, how do I manage a really dysfunctional set of cats, which is the theatre world, and how do I get them to do something which is going to be appreciated by an audience? So so as you said, it's, it's not that big a, a, a distance if you go think of the challenges that you've got of getting a, a design creative studio to actually produce things on time that meet the intended need, that are delightful, and also that they're able to have a resilient life that they want to keep coming back to work. Because people in theatre burn out, people in design burn out, so it's bringing those skills that it helps you to go and actually conduct your role here. So, John, what type of er do you have? Um, well, Kirsty, I'm like you, unfortunately. I'm, uh, I don't come from the design. Well, I don't come from a design training background. But I, actually, funnily enough, as, as you were, as everyone was talking, I was thinking we're all designers actually because we design ways of working or systems or processes or whatever we do. And it, 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 is a, it goes right to the heart of the challenge that you're setting, which is what is the definition of design. And it is, the, it is probably that, now the biggest challenge that we have in the design world is what is design. But I did a law degree uh, at Edinburgh University. I then did an MBA at Edinburgh University. And I started work with Cadbury's selling chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously you were successful with that because the businesses keep going on and on and oh, yeah, on. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I uh, various reasons. I got involved in the design world and have been involved for the last thirty plus years. Um, and uh, my epiphany moment, actually, funnily enough, was on a transport project as well. I worked for um, Brand New, which was part of the Michael Peters Group, which is one of the. You a lot of you are far too young to ever remember the Michael Peters Group, but it was. Michael Peters Group was probably the the design group that sort of went. Um, it was the first design group that went public, and it was the first design group that were, were selling projects at hundred thousand pounds and stuff like that, which was taking design to a different mm -hmm. level. But anyway, 
we pitched for and won the complete uh, redesign and redevelopment, or design and development of a thing called the Sheffield, well, it was the Sheffield Tram system at the, the time. We called it, we named it the Sheffield Super Tram. And for me, it was the, it was a bit like Paul said, I suddenly realised that what design can bring to the complete holistic thing, it, it just made it, you know, everything was centred around the proposition that we developed, you know, the the design of the stations, the trams themselves, the ticketing, the identity, the customer experience. Customer experience was, wasn't probably a word that was used in those days, but uh, you know we are talking about customer experience. And I, I suppose I've been very lucky to have been involved in the design world for so long. And it's because I believe that the design profession has not been recognized or rewarded in the same way that it should for the value it creates. So I was very lucky when I was at places like the Design Council producing some of these reports that talked about the value of design. I mean, it, it, it did actually, it was a really important moment for the design industry, I think. Um, so, but the role I've played is, you know, if we're talking about designers in the boardroom, I mean, I suppose my legal training, my MBA training, teaches you about the, uh, talking in a language that works for the audience that you're uh, are dealing with. And if you can do that and bring um, great design skills along with you, then it's a tremendously strong combination. And I don't, you, know, you don't necessarily always have to have that complete set of skills in one persona. It's often the teams of people that you bring to bear that actually makes the difference. And you're 100% correct there. It actually comes from a diversity of skills that actually creates a, a great design stack if you go think about it. You, know, you, you need the people who are masterful from a craft perspective in some of the smallest areas of design. So if I go think of wayfinding as part of a transport system, it's not the billion-dollar investment, but it's actually can get more throughput in a station because it's been done right. But if you went and thought of making the capsule for Hyperloop, that there's actually tremendous design challenges there that people have to feel safe and they have to feel like they're desiring to go into the capsule so that they get the benefit to go through the wayfinding system to get out of the station quickly. And then there's the UX and the UI that they have to go buy a ticket and that ticketing process has to be easily understood. And there's product design people who are working on on how the on how the the ticketing process works to make sure that it's contemporary with the market there. So there are so many different stratas or stack layers that are in there. They're all necessary to go get design in the boardroom because we need to come from that execution layer. There needs to be a management layer, and there also needs to be an ex an executive reporting level there as well. Yeah, and I, I again I'll come back to say I think how design has changed, and and certainly the the area that we work in, um, it's not a designer saying to a client, I have designed it like this because I like that. It's really understanding, you know, for us, we're designing, you know, we design the, the, uh, a new airline for a country or, or redevelop an airline for a country. And when you go on board that aircraft, it, it's like you're stepping into that country. So what we're trying to do is create a sense of place. And that's a very sophisticated area of design because it's not designing for something that I might like because I might be designing for someone who's young 
younger than me or from a, a different part of the world. And it's a very sophisticated area. So it's coming together all of the, the customer experience, the, the research and understanding, because you can't design without first understanding. But I think many designers go wrong when they start to think about designing for themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's great when we're in, in uh, looking to interview young designers and they're all designing things for their bedroom or their, their, where they're staying in halls of residence. You know? And it's a classic sort of area when, when really, if you look at the aging demographic of the, of, of the population in many cities and countries, they, everyone's much, much older than themselves. We used to, uh, just a, a very quick one, very quick one. I was head of design at Safeway, which was a retail store in the UK. Um, we had young design managers. And of course, inevitably, what you end up doing was designing for. Mm. You know, um, so what we used to do every three months, we would take the team out to store, and we had all these uh, various suits and eye things that you could wear. So you um, replicated myopia and yeah. tunnel vision, and also rec uh, replicated the the challenges that people have with arthritis reaching the top shelves. Um, and it was amazing the effect it had for about a month. <laughs> well, and, and so that's very interesting there because we're talking there about a model that, we, that we'll um, cover, which is the idea of made for company, made for self or made for people. And we know that if you're making it for yourself that it's in indulgence. It might suit some people, but it's not going to be very broad. If you're making it for the company, it's probably going to be for somebody who's got ego and that that's not well researched. It's not till you make it for people that you start to actually really get the benefit that's going to come through. And the board is actually after something that is going to have broad market appeal, be efficient for the organisation and go create accelerated economic outcomes. So really it has to be made for people, otherwise you're not going to be able to meet that criteria there. So thank you panellists for this part of the conversation. We're going to throw over to the audience for, uh, for some questions and uh, let's see what we've got here. Now don't be backwards and coming forwards audience because no questions are wrong. The only question that's wrong is the one you didn't ask. So help help us out here. Ask some questions. If I could um, pick you up on your last point, so start at the back. You've just talked about the importance of designing for yourself, designing for people, designing for the company. And that's a, that's a very important thing. It's a lesson for a designer to, to learn and take on board. But do you not also have to convince the board as people who have no none of the design background that they also have to design not for the company, not for what they like, but for a, a group of generic people that they've never met before. How do you get them to put themselves in the shoes of this? So throughout the series, we've had the opportunity to speak to people from New Balance, from Nike, and next week I'm speaking to Adidas. And what's interesting with those companies is that they don't have a board that needs to be convinced about design. The board there is demanding that the business uses design to meet their outcomes. So I suppose I'm trying to go and talk about the idea of you're making things for people, which is actually, let's call that the default template, not a broken template that needs to be fixed. But there are lots of challenges in there of how do you go convince boards? And I suppose, Paul, you've had to do that on some projects because the board may not be as calibrated about the benefits of something that you've been able to go deliver. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'd come back to my earlier point about about having a clear objective and a clear dream that that people can latch onto, and and have some kind of backup. and And some companies um, rely on a lot of research. So part way through a project, they'll they'll research and research to verify that the decisions they're making are correct. 
Um, some companies we work with um, will the 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 leader, the the the, the president will just say, "Well, didn't can do that." Um, and it's fascinating to work with those different companies. And that's 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 really what's interesting about being a consultant is that you you glimpse inside these companies and see how they actually operate. And the, the, I think the other process um, that we go through is that often we I say that we start working across the table from them so that we are presenting to them the ideas. And then as the project goes through and decisions are made, we then go around to the other side of the table with them and we help then make the decisions together as it goes through the manufacturing, the procurement, the working with all of the different hundreds of different people implementing these big projects. And then we are helping them make those decisions, but with, so we are in effect the design side of their decision process. And that's a really interesting thing to see. And, and that's when you, when, when, the, when the boss says, I had this great idea, and it's this, and it's actually our idea, it's great. You know, it's, you know once they start to say it's their idea, you know it's done. It's, it's a real buzz, isn't it? When, <laughs> when you go find an executive who's turned around and used your idea, claimed it as their own, you know, victory. Well, you know, it's done because yeah. it's going to go through. You know, that, that's the best outcome. So let me just ask a question. Has anyone heard of a guy called Johnny Ive? I think he, he makes um, Christmas well, decorations, well, okay, doesn't he? Uh, lots of people haven't heard of Johnny Ive. I think we're we're dealing with a different audience here. But, you know, and Johnny Ive, British-born, trained at Northumberland, designer, worked at a great uh, product design company here in the UK, picked up by Steve Jobs and, and off to California. And Apple has never looked back since. And he, and there's you can argue lots of arguments about, you know, how and how why it happened. But having him at a very senior level in the organization, working with Steve Jobs made a huge difference. And I think that um, it's interesting now that if you look at some of the venture capital stuff that ha is happening on the West Coast now, they're not actually invest, the venture capitalists are not investing in new companies unless they have a design presence um, at a very senior level within the organization. And I think that's a really important uh, point. But I just want to say one last thing. The absolute best fun is when you've got a board who just naturally get it. And I, I my, one of my favorite ones was when I worked in this retail organization. And every single member of the board, every weekend, was out visiting stores, not only our own stores, but also competitor stores. And we had a Monday morning meeting where the uh -huh. items just flooded in. But it was great because they were out there talking to customers, seeing how customers shopped, experiencing it for themselves. If only some of the financial services people would do that on a more regular basis. And 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 so you've you've actually so you've hit a couple of things which are really important there. But one of them is you need to be able to tell the story not just about somebody who understands the customer journey, but somebody who understands the financial implications. And so it's important that we're able to go and become storytellers to say, well, if you got a better experience, that this would be the financial result for you. And so some of that visualisation, some of that advocacy, we're not enabling people who do want to support the project to have something that's rational to them. Because often when we talk about design, we talk about non-rational elements, about these human touches we don't always actually back it up with also a rational basis for people who are sitting on boards and come from a rational perspective. So I think it's important that if you're trying to go work out how to convince somebody on a board as the question started, is you need to make sure that you, you know all of the board members, 
you know where they're coming from, you understand what their motivation is, and they all have a story that is actually going to support the initiative that you're trying to push forward. That's how you get something through a board. We've got another question. Um, how have new um, like social sites affected design in the boardroom, like a social media? What impact does that have on the design uh, decisions made? Well, I think I think many boards are sort of uh, are like rabbits in the headlight. I think they they're, they're petrified of of negative, um, and and that can have an effect on their decision making. That so, so particularly in in for instance the rail sector, um, they are sort of frightened of doing anything innovative, in case they have um, you know the shocking headline or, or or it's picked up in in social media. Um, so it has its plus points as well as its negative points. I mean, obviously, if, if they're, they're getting lots of dislikes, <laughs> then they, they, they know they have to do something. We, we recently, we were contacted by an airport um, because they, they, they're consistently below the, some of the best airports in the world. And they were just like, well, what can we do? And, and that's, that's a great starting point for a design brief. Um, and that's purely driven by, by, by social media. Um, so I think it has its, its good sides and bad sides. So, David, do you have any no, not particularly on that area, but it's just fascinating to hear that, that they're actually picking up on that and coming to you and saying, what can we do about it? Yeah, quite. I mean, those are some of the best briefs you know, in some respects because it's completely open. And, and of course, it's going to have to be customer experience related and, and trying to find out first. And again, you, you have to understand before you can design. Um, but it, 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 yeah. But on the um, positive side, just coming back to train design, often a train will be a kind of national icon mm -hmm. and so actually what we find is you know if we've designed a train head um, that when that train comes into service that people want that selfie moment you know they want to be seen by that train because people get a real kind of kick out of public transport actually whether that's a high-speed train or whether it's the tube you know there is this kind of great love and want to be associated with it. So it has its good sides and its bad sides, I think. Yeah. I think the interesting thing for me is that a huge number of boards don't recognize and understand the power and the role that social media plays. And if you can, if you don't understand it, it's very difficult then to, to, at a very senior level, formulate the strategies around it. I think the best companies are the ones who actually say, we need to accept that there will be negative as well as positive. And what we need to be geared up totally is to be um, honest and open and deal with the negative when it happens. And I think the ones that, and you know, we've, I mean, if you look at the transport one, what's the, what's the American airline that um, ejected a passenger and United. United and it just went completely wrong because they didn't know how to deal with it. Um, whereas the companies that actually know how to deal with it, uh, get it right. Volkswagen is another example of somebody who got it completely wrong. A good example, though, is uh, Virgin Trains, who once received a tweet from a passenger saying, there's no loo roll in the loo. <laughs> <laughs> and someone came to the loo with the loo roll. Really? <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> Immediately in response. So there's actually an issue about understanding how social media works. So... If you're going to release a new train and it's going to be a different experience, be on the front foot to have the people who are your advocates and are talking about how they like the new experience. Don't just wait for the negative people to come out because social media has trolls. It has people who just take delight in being shits. 
you know that's that's it so if you're if you sponsored a multi-million pound project you've turned around and you've put it into the public and you haven't done things to amplify the benefits then you probably need to be sacked as the communications manager okay you need to be on that front foot there you need to make sure that there's positive endorsement and you know there was a, a in 1999, there was a book that came out called Customer.com, Patricia Seibold, and it talks about the satisfaction equation. And the satisfaction equation is that if experience is more than expectation, you're satisfied. It didn't say it has to be 10 times more. It just is more. So if you're trying to introduce a new novel way for people to interact with your with your uh, customer service, and you haven't set their expectations, then you haven't done the full 360 on your project. So I think there that if a board is actually hearing negative feedback, there's no toilet in, in, in one of the trains, and that's coming up on a regular basis on social media, there should be some pain that goes through the boardroom. Because somewhere in line management, a person should have been able to go respond to that and actually excel. And so that gives a, that has to do with some of the culture inside the organisation. Obviously, Virgin has a good culture in that sense and knows how to go be contemporary with communication. But if you get caught and you're united and you're trying to take it, it's not our fault, we were innocent, we were okay, again, you've got a wrong culture. You haven't got something which is actually about your customers. You're actually about your risk or you're about you're trying to defend yourself. So it really comes down to the culture that you want and what type of satisfaction you want to set up for the organisation and what expectations for your customers. Now let's do one last question and then we're going to wrap up. One quick thing. Uh, in general, and it's a bit of a sweeping statement, people don't notice good design. They notice bad design. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, this is just for everybody here. John did say my last word, and that was the comment before then, but we'll pick up that. Have we another question from anybody? Because I know Paul's on a time frame here that we have to get him out of here soon. Go on, about the back. Um, I would be interested, um, my experience with or scenarios is often a very risk-averse environment. Um, I would be interested in, um, you know, obviously the board is made up of spearheads through an organisation, they're all heads of their departments, um, and often they don't really know what the others is really doing. So there is a, a, an assembly of very specific silos, and our, okay, that's dependent on culture, but I would be interested in your perspective on trust and um, creating a relationship in the conversation, taking the client through the design process when there's so many unknowns and there's so much risk averse um, haggling over violence and small amounts that really matter. I mean, I heard you mention wayfinding a lot. That's often a totally under, under understood scope and how it touches upon so many elements like business models, customer experience, etc. Um, so the element of trust, I think, is really important in the boardroom, and often the clients are at the same in, in context of design as when you understand. So let me let me give you a, a little bit of perspective there. Boards are no different to football teams in a competition. There are football teams that have a really good culture and are well rehearsed and they know how to continually win. And then there's people who are at the bottom of the bottom of the competition and are about to go out the door into another into another league. 
Boards are no different. What we need to do is actually set the imagination that there are fantastic performing boards, turn around and recognise them and champion them as the ones that we all should be trying to go meet their standards. And so the boards that are performing very well, they have a cohesive culture, they have a cohesive team and that they listen and they understand and it's not about somebody trying to one-up the other. If you've got a toxic board, you can wind up in a scenario where it's very difficult to get anything done. And I'm sure that uh, for our panellists that they've they've gone in where they've um, met a board and then they've turned around and through the life cycle of a project, it's gone from being a high-functioning board into a toxic board and that can make it very difficult for anybody to succeed. So I suppose if you've got a high-functioning board, everything's going to go very well and I'll take Nike and New Balance as being examples. Please, go. Um, I, th I think that um, you know, with some of the projects we're working on with boards, the investment they're making in, into um, a, major, a you know, major purchase is the make or break of their company. And they're very aware of that. Um, so many boards will back up all the, the work that we're doing with research. But you know, I think the best designers actually present a case which they can understand and feel comfortable with. And um, you know, to, to their shareholders, they have to do due diligence as well. Um, so some of the some of the, the the boards we work with, and I must say, your comment about toxic boards, you don't have a choice. You can either walk away from a, a project or not. That's the designers don't have that choice if it's toxic or gone toxic. I, I don't take that actually. I, I don't agree with that because I think I'm, I'm an optimist. You have to be an optimist to, to be a designer, and um, my my challenge is always to make it work. Uh, and to get something, in, ca in some cases, to make it better than it would have been and, it, and of course, be the best in, in the world. Um, but it, 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 I don't think there's a hard and fast uh, uh, solution to it. But, but I think to, to have a strong idea, uh, make sure that you've done your research and, 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 and you can line up so they make the right decision. And with most, most projects, we will do a project which is what they want, a project which is a little bit even better and one which is like reaching the stars and hopefully they'll end up in the middle. Um, but, you know, you, you can present them what they want and they go, oh, no, no, that's too boring or that, that's, 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 we're not have moved on enough, but you know you've moved them. And I think that's, again, just letting them make the right decision through, through the skill of the design. I think it's also then giving them the right tools that they can sell the idea internally yeah. because yeah. you can do your presentation, they choose one route, but then there are lots of conversations that have to happen internally to sell that idea and sell it on. And I think helping them do that is, um, yeah, is one of our key skills. So I will have one last word. <laughs> I think um, uh, often you get individual members of boards who somehow seem difficult and don't want to be involved and don't want to follow the process. And it's usually down to the fact that in some way, shape or form, they haven't been listened to or they haven't been heard. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I, I used to do a lot of big brand um, change programs with big organizations and it was really important that you actually interviewed every single member of the board because although they may be the logistics director they had a view on brand and design as much as anyone else mm -hmm. and if you um, if you included them in the interview process they were part of the team then and you used actually the, the trick was that you then used half the meeting was to listen to them and half of them was to coach them into what you wanted them to be thinking as well. But it works. It genuinely does work. Yes. Um, just, to, just turning this around a little bit because we, we don't go and 
generally present to boards. Um, but uh, just from an experience where we've had, whether it be a toxic board or not, we had a change of board personnel, if you like, board members, and it became all about selling our products, not about the design process and bringing on new products. And so we were sort of stifled, stymied really for a couple of years when this was going on. And we've managed to change that. Thankfully, we've got a board now that really gets it. And uh, we were just talking about it this morning to the board. Um, but we had a period where the board didn't really get what our roots were. We've gone back to understanding that again. And that made a big difference to the way we move forward as an organization. And so that, you know, just from an internal view point from, the, the, you know, I'm a sort of, um, you know, we're one of the executive of the of the organization, but we have to report to our board, but we also have to bring that board along and make sure they're continuing to understand what we act, what's the, what are the roots of actually what we do and where we bring benefit to our sector. And so when that goes wrong, and you could call it a toxic board if you like, but uh, that that's forgotten. And, and then it became all about just selling and making some money off the back of these things. And really we're about doing that and humanitarian work, but actually just raising the bar again and again by doing better design for our beneficiaries and anybody that receives a product of ours which is much like what you're talking about, you know, with your with the co the company's customers, whether it be a plane or a train or any other form of transport. And I think that's a great summary there that if you stay on your mission, your values and your purpose, that you're likely to go get to the result, even if there are some board members who are, who are being difficult. Listeners, it's been an absolute delight to go have our panellists here. Audience, it's great to have you in the room here at Priestman Good. How about a big round of applause for our panellists and for Priestman Good for hosting us. Thank you.